Welcome to another special edition of the Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Professor Joe Lacante of the King's College, recorded recently in Washington, D.C. In part one, we discussed Christian realism and its implications for domestic U.S. policy. In this episode, we discuss Brexit, the EU, and the survival of the European Union, and Joe's recent book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. Join us for part two of this conversation with Joe Lacante. Welcome back to the Provcast, our regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I am uh, Drew Griffin. I'm here uh, back with uh, Professor Joe Lacante of the King's College, who's a senior editor here at Providence, a senior fellow of Christianity and culture at King's, and a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, and author of a number of books. One of these books we're going to talk about in just a second. We've been talking about uh, Christian realism and American foreign policy, and I want to transfer over uh, Joe to uh, Cross the Pond uh, to <laughs> an area that you're familiar with, to, to Europe and to Great Britain. And I know you've spent a lot of time uh, over there, and, and even just recently you've spent a lot of time over there and over the last couple of years uh, working on a number of different projects. And so you've seen maybe kind of firsthand or had some good conversations and interactions as the, the whole Brexit um, drama has unfolded over the last two years. And we talked in the previous segment about this this um, uh, interplay between the two extremes of kind of the the cynicism of people who think that there is kind of there's no hope right for um, mankind and that there's there's no use in forming alliances there's no use in kind of pursuing for peace we just need to take care of ourselves and let the world fend for itself and then this utopian ideal of well if we can just all band together we can fix all the world's problems and so what you have with the U- European Union is kind of an experiment in that mm-hmm. utopian ideal right I mean they yes. want it so yes, badly, yes, you know, yes. all of these kind of secular humanists <laughs> in Europe are just are just dying for this to work, and they want yes. to see, um, and they have seen, and to maybe their credit, and to the um, uh, the credit of this this culture, seventy years absent of any major conflict, yes, yes. right, which is a huge achievement in a region that that was spawning conflicts, you know, about every twenty years, major, you know, continental yes. conflicts and global conflicts, so. Here we have the uh, people of Great Britain voting, uh, not in really a majority, if you you look at the voting population, but enough people voted uh, to leave the European Union and begin to break up this experiment. And it's driven by a lot of of critics who are saying that, you know, maybe they're cynical of saying, we we don't believe this experiment is going to work. It comes with too high a cost. We want our national sovereignty back. We want to be able to define ourselves uh, by our own culture. We want the ability to uh, prosecute our own citizens and and not, you know, subject them to uh, foreign courts. Um, And those are all legitimate, I think, uh, concerns. Uh, those are concerns that I think would fall within kind of a, some Christian realist understanding of sovereignty and the importance of all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then the danger is that, you know, this this experiment of 70 years of peace that we've seen that's been kind of a byproduct of this this uh, cooperation and, and the erasure, the erasure, uh, sorry, the erasure of uh, borders – uh, is could be coming to an end, yeah, right, and could yeah. completely come apart. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, you know, um, what maybe you've seen or what you've heard or your kind of own impressions over the last couple of years of being there uh, during this drama as it's unfolded, and then maybe what you see in terms of the the interplay of, of Christian realism and, and what's happening over there. Well, more softball questions from you, Drew. That's yeah, just terrific. that's right. Yeah, <laughs> take your time. <laughs> and I've got friends on both sides of that question, British friends on both sides of the question of Brexit. 
And maybe it's just worth pausing again, underscoring the point you made. It is a great achievement that Europe has, has been able to pull off with the European Union, these countries at peace for the better part of 70 years, and recalling again uh, that it was the European states that, in a a sense, engaged in a mutual suicide pact twice in the 20th century, and twice the United States gets pulled uh, into those conflicts and helps to bring them to a close, uh, to an end, to a peace, you know, a a reasonable conclusion. So we have tied our own uh, political future to Europe in the 20th century as part of the the, kind of the American story. But on, on this question now, think about it. They've achieved this kind of European uh, Union, economic political union. They've kind of aspired to be the United States of Europe. But states, statesmen uh, like uh, Margaret Thatcher, who had, a, a, I think, a great sort of Christian realist orientation in her own way, what was possible and what's not possible. Margaret Thatcher decided early on, okay, European Union up to a point. We're not going to buy into the currency. So the British pound is the British pound. And most economists, I think, would say... The fact that Britain was able to keep its currency out of the European market to maintain its own power has contributed to its own economic success uh, and economic growth. Uh, And this goes back to the the regulatory matrix that has become part of the European Union, the burdensome regulations that have slowed down the economies of those other countries. So Britain is is the economic dynamo next to Germany, of course, on the continent. It's Great Britain that has this uh, booming economy and the pound, the independence, the economic independence of of Great Britain relative to these other states is part of the reason for that. So that's a realist view that it has has its limits. I mean, I, I can kind of see this from both sides, this issue from both sides. I think on the one hand, um, there's absolutely a value to being in some kind of political community, uh, the European Union, where you're able to move across borders pretty easily. That really helps in terms of commerce. You still maintain your national sovereignty, but you're able to move across borders uh, with this sort of common currency. I, I, I understand all that and the value of that. Uh, and it increases the what awareness of other cultures and the sense that you know we're part of this larger human community. And that's a good thing. Um, We don't have to see uh, the other as the other. Uh, People from other nations as somehow an enemy or an adversary. Hey, they just cross borders as easily as as we can imagine. That's That's a good and useful thing up to a point. Where I think the European Union has gone off the rails is the way that it's imagined that unelected bureaucrats in Brussels can make decisions now in an undemocratic way for an entire continent for hundreds of millions of people literally helping to direct their lives, impacting their lives through a regulatory matrix. So Great Britain has said that they are not going to submit to that to, to the, that kind of uh, infringement upon their sovereignty. And if you look at some of the, the rules and the regs uh, being imposed uh, upon them historically, we as Americans would never submit to the kind of oversight and the lawmaking and, and the rules and the restrictions that the European Parliament has been trying to impose on all of its members, including Great Britain. We would never submit to it as Americans. In fact, we didn't. We fought a, revol- <laughs> we fought a revolution. <laughs> as uh, a matter yeah, of fact. To, <laughs> right. To bring Thank history, to bring history into it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Appreciate that. An important yeah, sure. footnote. Sure. So, uh, you know, this could be seen as, as Britain's kind of Independence Day. That's how they, of course, portrayed it rhetorically, Britain's Independence Day from the European Union. So I, I have a kind of sympathy as an American, as a patriot, as someone who cares about national sovereignty 
uh, and government by consent of the governed, this great lock-in and then Madisonian kind of concept, Jeffersonian concept, really has been challenged by overreach. What starts out as a good idea, the natural growth of things, back to Christian realism, the natural tendency of any political entity is to want to not only have power, but to get more of it, to increase power. Uh, and that, I think if you're unelected especially and unaccountable as they are over there to European, par uh, European uh, Parliament and government, they're effectively uh, really unaccountable. Yes, they have these sort of elections, people send their members off, but now they're making these rules that <laughs> no one's really voting on. No, no one's voting on these rules anymore. They're really being, are being made by a club, a European club. And I think that... Uh, that plays into this whole Christian realism uh, concept. Once you have that kind of power and authority, the natural human tendency is to abuse it. And I think Britain got to a place where th the abuse is going on too long and the leaders there in the European Union were not willing to listen to reason, to scale back their demands uh, as the, nego the negotiators there from Britain tried to get them to scale back their, their demands. They took it to a national referendum. We can debate whether that was a wise decision uh, given uh, um, democracies and all the rest of it. Was that a wise thing to do? We can debate it. But now they're on the horns of a dilemma. Now my British friends are on the horns of a dilemma. I think they rightly resent the imposition of these rules and regulations and this bureaucratic culture uh, that that's, has so impinged upon their own national sovereignty, the principle of government by consent. They rightly resent it. But now, what do you do? And as, and, as trying to extract yourself from this, what, what is this, uh, this bureaucracy going to allow them to do? Under what terms? And how damaging is it going to be to Britain's economy and, and, and its political life? When the decision is not being made in a vacuum, because the decision is um, uh, happening amidst globalism, which is, uh, and I mean globalism in terms of like economic globalism, in, in that um, while they're separated by the English Channel, like they're connected economically in ways where you've got, you know, um, uh, factories, you've got uh, auto factories, auto manufacturers, uh, you've got uh, the trade between uh, Europe and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Great Britain, and uh, which they're overly reliant upon one another. And, you know, so it's, it's all fine and well to say, well, let's just pull out, right? And let's just... Um, Let's just leave. Yeah. Let's renegotiate let's, let's, the trade deals, yeah. right? But um, it's uh, it's more complicated than that. And what's ironic is that yes, what's made uh, Great Britain attractive has been the the presence of the pound and that kind of stability uh, that the um, British pound has. Um, and so it's been a very attractive um, location. It's a magnet right, for investment. Eastern Europeans, when you spend uh, right. time over there, it's amazing. Eastern you're Europeans, uh, you know, Russians, uh, Poles, uh, companies. Yeah, right. They they invest there. They buy homes there. They build factories there because it's a, a yeah. slightly more secure. Yeah. It has slightly more effective. So th over the time, uh, over the years, over the the period of the kind of the development of the EU, you know, we see Europe take an increased interest in Great Britain, and so now that that yeah. economic interest is is in danger. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, because the they're yeah. the global market works so quickly now that uh, all you've got to do is close the factory down and move the jobs to the continent yeah. or move the jobs to yeah. China or India or wherever you want to yeah. move. And uh, there are other markets that are available that are ironic. I mean, if you didn't have these pre-existing arrangements, it would probably be more attractive than Great Britain, yes. right? Um, and so mm -hmm. they can they can now move. So yeah, I think it's it's very difficult, and and we're obviously not going to you know come to a, a conclusion on it. I want to relate kind of in the last moments of our time, uh, go to. 
uh, some projects that you've been working on in regards to uh, your latest book. So, so much of this conversation that we're having about realism, about history, about Europe, uh, you know, funnels through uh, 1917, funnels through the Great War and the impact that that had on the continent and on culture. Uh, and you, I think, in a, in a brilliant way, in a, a unique way, uh, took a, a couple of, of major cultural you know, signifiers and cultural um, uh, luminaries and the impact that the Great War had on them, had on their writing and uh, their experience, and kind of teased that out, I think, in a, in a very helpful way, looking at J.R.L. Tolkien, looking at C.S. Lewis, their experience with World War I. Um, so tell us a little bit, uh, just briefly, kind of about uh, the book and yeah. the impetus behind it yeah. and its, its kind of thesis, and then uh, we'll talk about some projects that you've got coming up with that. Well, thank you, Drew. Thank you for those kind words and that, and that invitation. You know, I could summarize the, the, this book uh, and then the, a film project we're working on uh, in relation to it. I could summarize it in three words. It's about war, friendship, and imagination. Because it's the crucible of war that really makes possible this remarkable friendship between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. That's in part what brings them together. But it's also their friendship, their amazing friendship that stretches over decades, that makes possible the creation of their great imaginative works. They owed such a great debt to, to, to each other in, in what they then went, went on to write. So if you think about it, both these guys, they fought in the First World War. They survived the trenches of France. They didn't know each other then. They then uh, meet at Oxford in 1926, and soon they become great friends. Tolkien will help lead C.S. Lewis, then an, an atheist, lead him into Christian faith over many conversations. Uh, they will then go on to write in the 1930s and 40s, they then go on to write their great epic works, The Lord of the Rings, The Chronicles of Narnia. And if you think about it, those great epic works, well, war, the theme of war and conflict is pretty much close to the heart of both those stories, right? <laughs> the war over the ring, the war in Narnia. And so I began to wonder, once I figured out that both these guys fought in the First World War, which I didn't know until rather recently, once I figured that out, then a light bulb went on in my head. Well, wait a minute. No man who fought in the trenches of France um, uh, passed through that experience, that catastrophic experience unchanged. How might the searing experience of war influence these men uh, and their writing, their literary imagination? That's what the book tries to unpack. Mm. Um, it gave them a realism about life, a, a Christian realism, I think, about life, about war, about conflict, about human nature. But it didn't make them cynics. Right. They, they retained, I think, deep, uh, deeply because of their Christian convictions, they retained their sense of the, the value of every human life, uh, the potential for virtue, for heroism, for sacrifice, for love, and for redemption. They retained all those terrific concepts, deeply Christian concepts, and their stories are embedded with those concepts, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You know, I think, so. and that's what makes, I think, both the works of Tolkien and Lewis so enduring and that they, they occasionally and, and rather frequently, thankfully, go over, go through a kind of a renaissance and a rebirth. You know, new yeah. generations discover them yes. and and bring yes. them up and, and remake them and remake movies about them and, yeah. and you know, uh, republish republish their works because there's, there's something, because these two individuals touch on these kind of enduring themes and because I think they tap into 
into the great meta narrative, right, yes. of of humanity, of that fallenness, but also the the possibility of redemption, and that there there are the solution that ultimately exists out there is outside of our ourselves. Right? Yes, I mean, we're we're striving for, it, but yes. never going to quite get it. Yes, um, that that there there's something appealing in that. Yes, I, and I think there's there's a a comfort in that. That ironically, the secular world in its uh, attempt to kind of pacify itself and say, hey, there's nothing wrong yes. with this world. We're totally fine. <laughs> and yet when you look around, you see nothing but awful stuff happening, you know, yeah. genocides and, yeah. and wars and, yeah. and horrible events. It's yeah. like, well, obviously we're not fine. And obviously yeah. there is something wrong. But there is comforting to see narratives in which people yeah. are struggling with that, in which even the heroes are struggling with their own weaknesses. Absolutely. And that uh, they are imperfect and that there is... Yeah. Um, there's something kind of, I think, enduring and very helpful about that. And uh, in contrast, I think, to a lot of modern kind yeah. of nihilistic literature, yeah. I can think of like Game of Thrones with George R. R. Martin is very, you know, uh, there, there seems to be no narrative. There's just yeah. a lot of people dying. You know, right? <laughs> where are the heroes Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. where are the heroes? Where I mean, it's like everyone's the anti-hero. There aren't heroes. Everyone's yeah. bad. Everyone's dying. There's massive amounts of death. Life is not valued. There's no kind of yeah. presence in that. There's no greater struggle. It's yeah. just this this nihilistic uh, battle and, and, and conflict for power. This Game of the Thrones is a whole kind of point. Um, and uh, even like Hunger Games, or there are other there are other kind of more modern um, writers that have uh, you know, dispensed these um, these yeah. narratives that are obviously not rooted in that kind of confrontation with mortality. Yeah. yeah. And the, the seeing yeah. when when life isn't valued and and what that really looks and smells yes. like. Yes. Um, and uh, you know that when that's absent. Uh, what you end up with, I think, is and I'm being a literary critic here, I guess, but it's kind of this vapid, these vapid stories, right? That that I don't think ultimately, you know, a hundred years from now, when people are still reading Lord of the Rings, right? Um, these the newer stories, the more nihilistic stories, aren't going to have that kind of staying power. Right? I think you're absolutely right. I think you have a future as a film critic, uh, uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, But there is a moral cynicism right. to the to the modern stuff, which both Tolkien and Lewis avoided. And I think this is part of their amazing achievement. Because think about it. They're coming of age in the 1920s and 30s. And Drew, you know what's going on in Europe in the 1920s and 30s. It's the rise of communism and fascism and scientism, the, the, the eugenics movement, all movements. All these things are going on uh, while Lewis and Tolkien are thinking about what kind of works do we want to read and what kind of works do we want to write. There's a famous conversation the two of them had. I'm paraphrasing now, Tolkien and Lewis. And uh, Lewis said to Tolkien, he called him Tollers. That was his nickname. Well, Tollers, if they're not going to write the kind of books that we want to read, we're going to have to write them. And that's what they kind of set out to do with the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. So they're pushing back, I guess is my point, Drew. They're pushing back against the cynicism of their own age. It's an incredibly cynical time in the 1930s, morally, uh, religiously. There's a lot of agnosticism. There's a kind of gloom and disillusionment because of the, the carnage of the First World War. The whole idea of heroism has gone on by the wayside, you know, all quiet on the Western Front. Those are the kinds of novels that are being published, anti-war novels and pacifism and utopianism. is all in the air in the 1930s. And so what are Tolkien and Lewis doing? Well, they're trying to retrieve the concept of the mythic hero, the, the, the ancient and medieval chivalrous knight, the mythic hero, but they're reinventing him for the modern mind. And it's an amazing achievement because, like, as you suggested, all of their heroes, they're not cardboard cutouts, two-dimensional characters. 
they are deeply flawed. They are aware of their own weaknesses. They're all subject to temptation to sin and to a fall, a, a, a great moral fall. I mean, what's the whole drama of the, of the Lord of the Rings? Well, can Frodo carry the ring without being corrupted by it? And how does it kind of come to a close, if I could, uh, uh, you know, alert your audience to how the uh, story ends, if they don't already, right. spoiler alert here. Right, you know, right. Uh, Frodo... If you haven't read the book in the last <laughs> 70 years, here's what the... Uh, you know, tip here, right. Frodo fails in his quest. He puts the ring on his finger at the end and says, the ring is mine, right? He fails in his quest. And so the ring will be destroyed, but not by Frodo. Not by the fellowship. It's Gollum, this creature, this despicable creature who, you know, bites the, the ring off of Frodo's finger and then falls into the cracks of doom. So Tolkien describes that as a sudden miraculous grace, a sudden turning. Um, a you catastrophe. A you catastrophe. Right. The reversal of a catastrophe, right. a word he invented. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that Tolkien has this idea, uh, this idea of God's grace. We can't save ourselves from this great evil, from the power of the ring. We need help. We need grace from outside of ourselves. And Lewis understands exactly the same thing from his own deeply Christian perspective. How are the children rescued from the stable? Not through their own power and strength. Aslan has gone into the stable, what they believe is going to be their own end, this dark force that inhabits the stable. Well, Aslan has gone in. He's cast out the demon Tash, and he's turned the stable into a portal into Aslan's country. So again, grace comes, comes from outside of us and rescues us from our own selves, our own deeply fallen condition. They both understand that at a profoundly Christian level, and I think that's part of what gives their works an enduring appeal. Right. And I think it's a, a, one more kind of uh, a picture that, that both, I think, um, uh, elucidate is that there is this uh, value of community. And I, yes, ironically, yes. that there is, uh, you know, two liberal critics who would say, uh, this is all, you know, kind of this realism is, is I don't like this, you know, war and violence and the, ne the ne necessity of it at some yeah, times. It's yeah. like, I don't, I don't know if I like all that. And yet there there is this picture here of kind of cooperation in that yes. it is um, you know, all of the the number of heroes like within the um yeah. uh within the story, whether it's the fellowship yeah. or whether it's the company of, of dwarves yes. or whether it's uh the brothers and sisters, uh, daughters of Adam and sons yes. of Eve, and like that none of them as an individual kind of has what it takes, right? Yes. None of them have, they each have different virtues. They're each kind of gifted yes. with different skills and different virtues and different tools. And it kind of takes all of them in concert, striving and failing really along true. the way, a different, you know, uh, really ways along the, the story um, to ultimately like accomplish something. Yes. And there, I think there's a lesson in there for, for yeah. people who are, are cynical about humanity or uh, even overly hopeful for humanity is like, no, I mean, the fact that we're fallen and that we are um, that we are going to fail at yeah. times doesn't mean that we still don't get together. Still yes. doesn't mean we don't cooperate. Exactly still doesn't right. mean that we don't form unions and and organizations and treaty organizations <laughs> and partnerships and all of yeah. these things. Like um, because everyone ha possesses different virtues that will complement one another and help offset yes. and augment these yes. weaknesses. So that you know, are we going to achieve the ultimate end? No. You know, it's going to take a catastrophe. Yes. Right? It's going to yes. take a, a Christ. It's going to take a Jesus. You yes. know, coming coming back. Something that that happens that um, that ultimately fixes it, fixes it. But we keep that evil at yes. bay yes. Know, by doing that. Yes, I'm so glad you raised the issue of community, Drew, because it's 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 hugely important. Friendship, 
fellowship community. It's called the fellowship of the ring. Right. And I think this is another thing that, that both of them got in the First World War. We forget the intense camaraderie that men feel when they're in combat together. Uh, men under fire. We have this kind of romantic vision of it maybe with, uh, you know, Band of Brothers, the, the TV series from the Second World War. But the men in the First World War experience something very much like that. The, the intense fellowship and camaraderie. Tolkien and Lewis both experienced that. They, they lost most of their closest friends in, in combat. Both of them did. But what did they uh, do then after they uh, met each other at Oxford? They formed their own fellowship called the Inklings, this group of Christian authors, all of them Christians. Most of them were war veterans, actually, and they began to meet in the 1930s. And Drew, these guys met, Lewis, Tolkien with the anchor, and then these other group of men who came alongside. They met for the better part of 20 years every Thursday night in Lewis's rooms there at Maudlin College. I mean, every they just carved out the evening to what? To uh, discuss each other's works. Everyone would come with something they were working on, something they were they were writing, and they would read out a portion of that to the group and then be critiqued by Tolkien and Lewis and these other great minds. Can you imagine being a fly on that wall? Right. But that's how, in fellowship together, Christian fellowship, they were pushing back against, I think, the darkest forces of their age. It's a remarkable story of friendship and fellowship for a higher purpose what friendship is supposed to be about, a higher purpose, a good and noble purpose. Tolkien said that he based his character, Sam Gamgee, on the privates that he knew in the First World War. He said, of course, my Sam Gamgee is based on the ordinary English soldier. When I first read that line from Tolkien in one of his letters, I thought, wow, there's a book in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Because I didn't was, know yeah. that, that, the, yeah. that one of the most beloved characters uh, in 20th century fiction, The Hobbit, is based on the ordinary English soldier doing his duty, staying at his post, staying with his men. So tell us a little bit about the the film project that you yeah. have in regards to um, The Hobbit, The Wardrobe, and The Thanks Great for asking. War. The, yeah. film, the film project is called The Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and a Great War. We're projecting a, either four or five part film series, a documentary film series. We've done a lot of uh, filming already in the UK, in France. I was in uh, France uh, just here in November with my film team. We were we went to the place where Tolkien and Lewis fought at, at the Somme, in the Somme Valley. I was literally standing more or less where Lewis was when he was injured by a, by a, uh, a mortar shell, almost killed him. And so we've got uh, we've got enough footage right now for a couple of episodes. We're cramming as much as we can now into episode one, which is kind of subtitled right now, Men at War. We'll trace the war experiences of these two men pretty carefully in the First World War in episode one. Uh, but then we're going to unpack it. We're going to unpack the rest of their of the rest of their story. Uh, the we'll kind of step back after episode one, and we'll talk about what was the mood in Europe like just before the war. The myth of progress. The idea that not only are we getting better technologically and economically, but maybe human nature's getting better. We'll talk about that uh, mood just before the First World War that Tolkien and Lewis are kind of get swept up in this idea of human progress. Uh, that'll probably be episode two, the myth of progress. Episode three, then, we'll really talk about them meeting and their friendship uh, and their careers now, their emerging careers at Oxford. Uh, and then episode four, we'll kind of bring it all together with, okay, now they're writing their epic works on the eve of a second global conflict. Tolkien starts writing The Lord of the Rings in 1937. 
Well, guess what happens in 1938? Mm, yeah. The Munich Agreement, Hitler's march on Europe begins. The war starts in 1939. Tolkien will write The Lord of the Rings right through the Second World War. Lewis, of course, will begin to write uh, many of his most important works during the Second World War. Think about how the Chronicles of Narnia begins. Oh, English children being evacuated from London. Right, how yeah. come? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> because of the Blitz. Right. So the, the urgency, this is something I didn't quite appreciate when I wrote the book uh, initially, The Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and a Great War. I didn't appreciate how much the Second World War, I think, created a sense of urgency among these men. They fought in the First World War. Now they have to live through a Second World War. And I think it gave them the sense of, we've got to get on with our callings in a time where we don't even know if Britain's going to survive in 1938, 39, 1940. Right. Well, I'm so glad that they got along with their callings. I'm so glad that you got along with yours. <laughs> and, um, and we've got to get on with ours. <laughs> so um, thank good. you, uh, Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes.